If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. And uh, we've been in the series. We're, about, we're at the halfway point, actually. This is, uh, we, we have 20 parts of the series to, that we prepare to do. And this is part 11. So we're, we're right at the halfway point now. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you now, it's about to get super weird. So um, and, and I, I'm, I posted on Facebook this morning, like, yeah, we're about to uh, do Revelation 6, and it's going to get weird. And a friend of mine who I went to seminary with commented, like, hasn't it already been pretty weird? And, like, yeah, it, it has, but it's about to get way weirder. Like, so, because today we're going to be looking at some images that you probably have seen uh, in, like, literature or pop culture or, like, I don't know, your nightmares. I don't know. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to look at some of these images, and we're going to try and figure out, okay, what is going on? Because at face value, this is very weird, very freaky kinds of stuff. So a couple of things to keep in mind before we go any further into this. The first thing is that this... Before it was anything else, the book of Revelation was a letter that was being sent to seven different churches in ancient Turkey. And so, and seven churches, by the way, who were, uh, who lived in cities that were occupied by the Roman Empire. And so there's lots of stuff going on that we don't necessarily just naturally understand or know about, but they would have had full access to. And so what, the first question we have to begin asking is, okay, when, they, when the original readers of this accept or received this, what did it sound like to them? Because... Um, how, and, and my, my argument would be before it was anything else, this letter was meant to be good news to people who were suffering. And so that's something we have to keep in mind as we look at this. And then the second thing is a lot of what we find here is metaphor and poetry. This writer whose name is John is writing and he's trying to use this very big sweeping language to explore things that are a little bit, I think, beyond just sort of like nuts and bolts explanation. Because sometimes when you go through something, you don't need like a historian to just come in and explain to you what happened. You need a poet who can really articulate exactly what it is that's being experienced in in terms that are way, way bigger than this happened, then this happened, then this happened, if that makes any sense. So before we go any further into this, we have to understand, first of all, this was written to real people in a real place who needed good news. And second of all, a lot of this imagery and language is poetic imagery that is meant to sort of invoke some part of like the human brain that maybe historical records would never get to, if that makes any sense. So all that to say, it's going to get weird. And, uh, and I, I didn't want anybody to be like, okay, this is where, this is where it gets totally crazy. But I, I think this is one of the reasons that people tend to avoid this book altogether is because once you get to images like this, we don't know what to do with it. And so what we do is we just sort of like set it aside and like, like I don't know, like, like put something heavy on top of it. Like, okay, I, I, I want to leave it there because it's like totally freaking me out. It's the theological word for it. It's totally freaking me out. And, um, and so we're going we're gonna to be looking at that. And so, uh, in fact, the word revelation means to, like, f- that something is being revealed. It's the idea of something, is ex- something already exists. Something is already happening in reality. And so to reveal it is to essentially, like, turn the light towards it and to say, okay, here's what's actually going on. And here, here's why this matters to each of us. So... I think that's all the disclaimers I had prepared. So we'll just go ahead and jump right into this. So in in Revelation chapter 6, we're uh, just going to read most of the chapter. Um, He writes, I watched as the lamb, and the lamb is a way that he refers to Jesus. And so he says, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. So what's what's happening here in this this passage is there's about to be a series of openings. So essentially, he's saying like there's lots of things that need to be revealed. And so he's revealing one thing at a time, and it exists in a series of seven. And so he's saying... uh, the lamb is about to open seven different seals. And so we're going to see seven different images. And so and then it says, I heard one of the four living creatures say in a, in a voice like thunder, come. I, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he, as, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So 
if you have seven different images, and this is the first one, we have to begin asking one by one, what are these images? By the way, um, this is the beginning of what's often referred to as like the four horsemen passage. Um, we mentioned several weeks ago that the emperor of Rome at the time, Domitian, was very fond of like competition and Olympic games. And one of his favorite competitions was a horse race featuring four horses of four different colors. So already, like we're tapping into some language that already exists in this world. So... Um, and so the first image we have is a rider on a horse, on horseback riding a white horse carrying a bow, so an archer. Now, what's really interesting here is one of the one of the most formidable enemies to the Roman Empire, who basically everybody who's reading this is part of the Roman Empire, whether they like it or not, and they are part of the Roman Empire. And so one of the biggest enemies to the Roman Empire at this time in history was a uh, group of people called the Parthians. So the Parthians, the where the Parthians existed was on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. And Rome had tried, as far as we know, at least three different times to conquer the Parthians, and each time they were unsuccessful. So somehow, this group of people, the Parthians, were able to overpower the Roman army every single time they, um, they tried to invade or, or occupy. And so one of the things that the Parthians were famous for in their military were horseback riding archers. In fact, at, as far as we know, the Parthians were the only army in the world at this time who used horseback who used archers who rode on horseback. In fact, if you google it, there's a there's a famous military maneuver called the Parthian shot. And the Parthian shot is um, that they invented. The Parthian shot is what happens when when an army is basically when they decide that it's time to retreat and the army begins to move back, what would happen is the the archers, the horseback mounted archers would ride uh, towards the retreat, but they would turn backwards and they would fire their arrows towards their enemy as they retreated. That's called the Parthian shot. The Parthians invented this. And so at this time in this place, if you start describing a... And by the way, the Parthians were known for riding light-colored horses. So at this time and in this place, if you describe an archer riding a horse, a, a white horse, that all of a sudden you know exactly what's... Like everybody who's hearing this is like, oh, we, like that's, that's an image we all know. These are the Parthians. And, and so what you have is you have a group of people who live in the Roman Empire. And as bad as the Roman Empire may be for some of these people, at least they understand it. And at least it's a system that they sort of get. The Parthians were viewed to be like a group of people on the edge of civilization. Because at any time Rome wanted to occupy your territory, by the way, they didn't believe that they were like hurting people. What they believed was that they were bringing, civil, they were bringing the gift of Roman civilization to the world. And so if Rome wants to occupy your territory, it's a gift. Because they are bringing, like you are uncivilized until Rome occupies you. And now you have... Um, now you have Roman civilization with you. In fact, the word they would use for this was Pax Romana. You were, they were bringing the peace of Rome into the world. Now, of course, if you didn't want the peace of Rome, they would kill you. So it's like peace with an asterisk. But it's, but, but you would have... So, so essentially, the way the Parthians were described and discussed in this time and place was these are savages who live on the edge of the world. And so like these were a group of people who were feared because like what... How strong and dangerous are, is this group of people who cannot be conquered by the most powerful army in the world? And so th- this opening sort of image is about, essentially what it's about, is about um, outside threats. And notice it talks about a conqueror bent on conquest. So if you have someone who lives on the outside of your society, who is not part of your tribe, who's not part of whatever system you're a part of, and the language about this group of people is they are dangerous, they are Un, they're like uncivilized. They will do whatever it is that people do if they conquer. Because there's always the fear of if Rome gets conquered, how much worse can it get? 
And so the Parthians were like a constant source of what, like a fear, essentially. Like what happens if the Parthians decide that they want to take over the Roman army? Because obviously Rome can't beat them. So what does it mean if the Parthians decide they want this territory that we live in? How much worse can it get for us? And so this is about the fear of outside threats. So right out of the gate, you have, you have this language, this image of what does it feel like to know that there is a threat outside of your camp, outside of your tribe, that you cannot control and you cannot defeat? How powerless does it make you? How vulnerable does it make you feel to have this understanding? If you remember... Um, if you're old enough to remember, which I can't even believe I have to say this, if you're old enough to remember uh, waking up on September 11th and seeing images that you never in your like never in your wildest dreams could have imagined of planes flying into buildings in your own like nation, like all of a sudden, what what the the natural like universal feeling throughout the country that day was we are completely vulnerable. It was this feeling of we never ever realized how easy it is to hurt us. And so there is this, and um, this is how our great grandparents and our great grandparents felt when Pearl Harbor was attacked, right? Like it's this this sense of what happens when you understand that you are not invincible. What happens when you understand that even even the most powerful army in the world is not unbeatable? And so this opening image is about outside threats. It's about the fear of what happens when the thing that we're, we most fear from the outside makes it inside. So that's the first image. So there's several of these, and we're going to have to go through them super fast, but um, or as fast as I possibly can, which is pretty fast. So in, um, in, verse, in, verse three, um, in verse 3, it says, When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Now, the key phrase here is kill each other. So the first image had to do with outside threats. What happens when the thing that you fear from the outside tries to make its way to the inside? This is like closer to home. It's it's essentially what happens when the people inside your tribe decide that they're a threat to you. And so the first had to do with outside threats. The second has to do with inside threats. I misspelled like every word in the last service. I'm going to try really hard to do that better. Um, this one has to do with what happens when you are in the tribe and there is violence that exists against you. And you had like violence you didn't even know was possible that happens against you. Have you ever had your car broken into? And all of a sudden, like you go, like you've been somewhere and you come out and like to get in your car and there's glass on the ground and all your stuff is gone. What is like, what's the first emotion you feel? You feel vulnerable. You feel like, it, like nothing happened to you in your person, and yet at the same time, you feel incredibly vulnerable and like exposed in, in a real kind of way. Or if you've ever, I don't know, I have a friend who, this is the, weird, this is the, the weirdest things happened to this guy. Um, he, was, he was walking on a pier in like somewhere in Southern California, and he made eye contact with this guy, and all of a sudden, this guy like started to attack him. Like he made eye, like the guy thought he was like being like like an animal in the wild. Like he like he made eye contact with this, this human, and and this person just like jumped on him, and they they got into like a like a physical fight, and they both ended up in the hospital. And so like, what happens when you're like just living your life, and all of a sudden like part, like some part of your civilization like attacks you, or you feel vulnerable in some sort of way? And so. Um, and so that's essentially what what this is about. So the idea of like to take peace from the earth and have people kill each other is what happens when when civilization breaks down from the inside. Or I mean, you can even take it to like a very very personal place. Like, have you ever had a friendship, and like you had a lot of confidence in that friendship, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason or for no reason at all, that friend chose to betray you, 
And so you had a place where you felt safe and all of a sudden you realized that was not a safe place. Have you ever had, have you ever told someone something in confidence and then they went and told everybody? Have you ever, um, have you ever trusted someone with something that was very like sacred to you and they, um, they betrayed you in some sort of way? What happens when the thing that you trust breaks down? And because I would argue that that, that sort of thing, betrayal, um, slander, those kind of, that's, that's, a, that's a type of verbal violence. So what happens when, when the thing that is meant to feel safe inside the tribe, all of a sudden that begins to break down? What happens when we, we begin to commit violence against one another? So that's the, that's the second image. So then, I'm sorry, I realize this is a lot of information, but um, we're just going to keep going. But in verse 5, it says, When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So now we're talking about economics. In fact, there's a, um, there's a curse in the book of Leviticus. It's an ancient Jewish curse about when things get really, really bad, you're going to have to start weighing all of the food and you're going to have to begin distributing things in in ways that don't satisfy anybody. And so he's calling back to that ancient curse. And he's essentially saying, like, the third thing... So the first thing has to do with outside threats. The second thing had to do with inside threats. This one has to do with what happens when the economic system begins to fail. What happens when all the... Like, whatever, like, basket you put all your eggs in, what happens when that no longer works? How many of us know someone who's been laid off? You know, or how many of us know, like I living in Texas, as we all do, I would imagine we all know at least one or two people who have lost their jobs, who at one point worked in the oil industry because oil was in demand for a really long time. And it was a very, very profitable thing to be in business. In fact, probably a lot of people we know who work in the oil industry got into that because it felt like a pretty safe bet. So what happens when the thing that we depend on stops being in demand or what happens when just like the normal systems begin to sort of fail? Like I'm, uh, if you've been keeping up with what's been going on for a while now in Flint, Michigan, you know, what happens when you find out that your water is unsafe? What do you even do about that? What happens when you find out that for years and years and years you have been bathing and feeding your children toxic water because all of a sudden you have a system that you trust a system that you dep- you don't even think about the water that comes out of your tap because you just assume it's okay. What happens when it turns out like, no, 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 the whole system is not as strong or as sturdy or as dependable as you once thought it was. So this third image has to do with systems. What happens when the system breaks down? What happens when the thing that you depend on stops working? What happens when the stock market crashes? What happens when, when whatever it is that you, you, you consider to be like the safe, stable thing stops working? And so then, um, in verse 7, it says, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And Hades is the Greek god of death and the underworld. So um, then it says, They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And so essentially, this is almost like a catch-all of, like, so if none of these things get you, eventually death will find you in one way or another. And so um, so this fourth one just has to do with death. And he begins talking about, like, disease, or like you're traveling somewhere and a wild animal attacks you, or like things that are completely out of your control. And so this is, again, something that we're completely, that's completely without 
like outside of our, our realm of power. So notice, by the way, how much like how it kind of closes in on you. Like you have, first of all, the outside threats. Which that's a remote possibility. The possibility that like, yeah, Rome occupies. Well, what happens if the Parthians come in and take over? The next one is, yeah, well, what happens if like someone inside the tribe decides that I'm their enemy? Like, what does that say? Or what happens when the economic system breaks down? And then finally, it like zooms into like, what's the one thing no one can control and everyone has to deal with? Death. So, I mean, I, there's no one here who doesn't know someone who has died or who has not at some, at some point in their life brushed up against death in one way or another. And so it gets closer and closer and closer. And it begins to articulate all these things that we fear, that torment us, that are totally out of our control. Who needs a drink, by the way? Like, this is it's very, very bleak, I realize. So, um, and what's interesting now is, like, we have, we have three more images, but he's out of horses. And so now it's like, okay, well, I've, got, I've got to keep going, but I've got no more horses. So like, he just abandons the horse imagery and just goes into um, the next thing in verse 12, where he says, I watched as he opened, I'm sorry, not verse, verse 9. He says, when, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of souls of, of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And so next you've got, essentially, these are people who have been killed because of their faith or their convictions. So you, essentially martyrs. You have, um, and by the way, this is a real thing in, in the Roman Empire. If you, if you were here several weeks ago when we talked about the city of Pergamum, one of the things that gets mentioned is a guy named Antipas. Antipas, as far as we know, was one of the earliest mal, uh, martyrs during this movement in, um, in ancient Turkey. So there are people who are reading this letter who like knew somebody who had been killed because of their faith and their, their convictions and what they were a part of. Not only that, this, this letter is being written in like the early to mid-90s, and about 30 years-ish before this, in beginning in the year 66, there was a massive revolt in Jerusalem. There's, and, um, and so in Jerusalem, and this happened several times, so this is probably the most devastating one. Um, several times, the people who lived in Jerusalem basically decided, like, we're kind of tired of Rome telling us what to do, and we're going to rise up and take our country back. Um, and so it never really went that well. And so this, at, at this particular time, uh, the Roman Empire sent a general named Titus into Jerusalem to basically lay siege to the city, and over a million people were killed. And... Um, and so, like, this, this revolt was, like, very decisively just, like, stamped down um, really, like, harshly. And so, um, not only that, uh, so over a million people were killed, and then it's believed that almost 100,000 people, like, fled the city and then scattered into all these other territories where maybe they could find some sort of safety or community, up to and including maybe some of these churches that John is writing to. And so it's entirely possible that you have people who are reading this letter who were in Jerusalem when Titus decided to, like, put the foot down and just, like, slaughter lots and lots and lots of people. In fact, um, in Rome, to this day, there is a, there's an archway in Rome, and it's called the Arch of Titus. In fact, every, every major military general in, in, in Roman history up to this point has an archway that's been built in their honor. And essentially, each ar- and an archway is just this giant structure. It's, um, it's like a big white structure. You, you've seen them in pictures. But um, it's like a giant white structure that you can like ride like a horse through or like a, like a parade through, essentially. And, uh, and the idea was like you would build the archway, and the archway would celebrate the victories of that general. And so the Arch of Titus, very specifically, is, is meant to celebrate the victory over Jerusalem, the, the, the massacre, essentially, in the city of Jerusalem. And, um, 
And by the way, if you, if you were to go to Rome today, the Arch of Titus is the only archway that you cannot go under. Because to go under an archway is to essentially endorse what it is. And so it's believed that to walk underneath the Arch of Titus is to uh, essentially support and celebrate the death of a million people in Jerusalem. And so it's seen as an act of anti-Semitism just to walk underneath it. And so you have, it's like roped off. Um, to this day, that's, that's what it is. And, um, and by the way, Titus had a younger brother named Domitian. And Domitian is the guy who built the archway that celebrated the death of millions of people in Jerusalem. Domitian, by the way, is the emperor at the time that the book of Revelation is written. So now it's all kind of tying together. And so you have, and so he begins to articulate, like lots and lots of you have suffered as a result of, like you have these convictions. And, and a lot of people have died or suffered as a result of these convictions. And he uses this language, by the way, of the alt, under the altar of the soul. There's a second century rabbi named Akiva who writes about the like, souls that, that exist underneath uh, this sacred altar, essentially as a way of saying, like, God protects them. And so this was a commonly used phrase to describe, like, this is essentially, it's a word of comfort to people who have lost someone. And so, um, so that's the sixth image. And then, I'm sorry, that's the fifth image. I keep doing that. And then, um, then in verse 12, it says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned, which by the way, like that's not a description you hear every day, like black, like goat hair or uh, sackcloth made of goat hair. Um, and then it says, made of goat hair, the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from the fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, this sounds like crazy, like, this sounds like science fiction, right? Like, so essentially, he's describing, like, this, like, the entire earth begins to, like, shake, and there's, um, and the, the sky turns black, and the stars fall from the sky. A couple of things to keep in mind. Remember, um, we talked about several weeks ago how several of these cities, most notably the city of Philadelphia, had very recently suffered a series of devastating earthquakes. And so, so much so that the people in Philadelphia had started to move out of the city so that their families wouldn't be affected the next time there was an earthquake. Not only that, in the year 79, there was a major volcanic eruption, um, uh, which I'm sure you've read in... um, that's totally lost me. Mount Vesuvius erupted. And so this is like a major, like lots and lots of people died as a result of this, this massive volcano erupting. Now, what, what does it look like when you live in a city and a volcano erupts and wipes out a lot of people? It looks like the sky turning black. It looks like, and so if you have ashes falling from the sky and all you, and like, you don't know what this is, like you don't have scientific language for it. It feels a lot like the stars falling from the heavens. And so if you're trying to use first century language to describe these kinds of things, what he's describing here is he's saying, like, the entire natural order often seems to betray us. So he's describing natural disasters. And he's not describing, like, someday this is going to get crazy. He's saying, like, yeah, some of you have, like, suffered. In an earth- some of you probably lost people the last time there was an earthquake in Philadelphia. So what's being said here is not, like, someday things are going to get crazy. What's being, what he's saying here is he's, he's essentially like looking around at the world that they all live in, and he's saying, look at all the things that we've all had to deal with at one, or, one time or another. We all deal with the threat of what happens when someone worse than Rome comes in. We've all had to deal with what happens when someone you know commits violence against you. We've all Remember, uh, we talked several weeks ago about the city of Thyatira, how there were these trade guilds, and there were people who were making a living, and then if you, but if you don't participate in all the things the trade guilds do, that can really disrupt your, like, the way you make your living. So all of a sudden, our systems are being threatened. How many people do we know who know someone who has died or who is facing death in some sort of way? How many people do we know who have lost something as a result of what they believe in and their convictions? How many people do we know 
who has suffered under, like in, under some sort of major natural disaster. He's not describing the future. He's describing now. He's talking about, he's essentially saying, this is, this is life as we all know it. He's saying, we all understand suffering. And essentially, he's saying, like, this is, like, these are all the different ways that we suffer. These are all the different ways that we have this fear and this anxiety that we all live with. This is life as we know it. He's describing their immediate reality. So what we find that continues to show up over and over again is that suffering is unavoidable. One of the things the scriptures continue to, to point us towards in really very specific ways is, like, you, like, there's no amount of, like, faith that can remove you from the possibility of suffering. Um, which, by the way, totally flies in the face of the, well, if you just had more faith, you wouldn't suffer. I mean, I, I'm sure most of us have at least met one or two people who this has happened to. And, um, and I mean, I've, I've, heard, I've heard people say that in ways that really, really hurt people. Like, I've heard, I've heard people tell, I've heard stories about people telling someone who is dying from cancer, if you had more faith, God would heal you. What does that say? I mean, like, I can't even wrap my mind. That's, I mean, I, I get why someone needs to believe that, but it makes no sense, and it doesn't fit anywhere in the Scriptures. What we find is that suffering is something we all deal with, and no amount of faith will rescue us from this, this amount of pain, which sounds like, again, doesn't sound like the best news ever, but what he's doing is he's, he's looking directly into reality, and he's saying, let's not be shy about what we're talking about here. We're all ta- we all understand suffering. We've all experienced it. And so he's naming it in very specific, very big kinds of ways. And so, but what's beautiful is that there's one more image that he has not shown us. So in chapter 7, there's like this little interlude, which we'll come back to in a couple of weeks. But then after he's done with the interlude, he kind of comes back around as if to say, like, by the way, I realize I have not talked about the seventh seal yet. And so in verse uh, 15 of chapter 7, he says... Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Which, by the way, hunger and thirst, what is that describing? What happens when the systems break down? So never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will, he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. So all of a sudden, this isn't about despair. It's about hope. And then in verse, uh, then it goes immediately into chapter eight and it says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, which by the way, this is a whole, that, that's a whole sermon all by itself because essentially what's being said is these people are crying out. And when there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour, what's being said there is like, God hears the cry that when, when we suffer and we cry out, it, it, this is the writer's way of saying that you are not being unheard. You are not being ignored. God hears the cry of those who suffer. And it says, and I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. So essentially now you have this image that represents the prayers of the people. And so, and then it says, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hands. In other words, the prayers are being received. The prayers are being heard. You are not forgotten is essentially this image. So you have these six images that all are about suffering and pain and fear and, um, and chaos and despair. And then the final image that we're given is about hope. This is 
this is a letter written to people who are suffering. He's not, he, he's not writing to them to threaten them or to freak them out. He's writing to them and he's saying, like, we're not going to ignore the reality that is in front of all of us. We understand that they are suffering. But here's the thing. That's not where the story ends. The final word is not about despair. The final word is about hope. And so suffering is unavoidable, but suffering does not get the last word in the story. So, um, in fact, take a look at something that Jesus says in John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, um, verse 32, uh, it says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, the time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each of each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He does not say, if you have enough faith, you can avoid trouble. He says, in this world you will have trouble. It's an absolute certainty. There will be times when you are afraid. There will be times when you are in pain. There will be times where you are in despair. But the final word, he doesn't stop there. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Hope gets the last word in this story. And so the relentless message of Jesus is, take heart. I have overcome the world. How many of us, we have found ourselves in some sort of despair, in some sort of pain and some sort of thing that we don't even know exactly how to describe. And it feels like the whole, like all of it, all of reality is just about this one thing. How many of us, like we live with just this heightened sense of anxiety. How many of us, we spend lots and lots of time trying to to think of ways to avoid all the ways that we might suffer. How many of us, how many of us have been betrayed? How many of us have had some sort of emotional violence done to us that we never even, from somebody that we never thought would hurt us? How many of us, we had a system that was in place and that system made a lot of sense and all of a sudden that system stopped working. You got a phone call, you got an email, you got a text message and all of a sudden the world is turned upside down. What happens when the system stops working? How many of us, we have encountered death at some point in our lives, whether it was some, someone that we knew who was very, very old and died very peacefully and very naturally or if it was some, um, someone very young that we lost without warning or somewhere in between. What happens when, like, like, is there anything more disruptive than a death? E- even, even if you know, even, even if you can prepare for, for weeks and weeks or months and months, it still hurts. And so how many of us, we've attended a funeral and we thought, like, how could this happen? I can't believe, because there's a permanence to it. Like, how much has the world changed as a result of this one thing? How many of us, we, we have held to a conviction and because we have held to that conviction, we have lost something. How many of us have, like, there are family members we have a hard time connecting with because we, we have had this re- realization that, that there's more going on, and, but that conviction has created a sort of, like, rift between us and other people. How many of us, there's a connection, there's a conviction that we have, and all of a sudden we are not connected to, to some people as, as we once were? How many of us have... For no fault of our own or for, like, for no reason at all, how many of us we know someone who's been affected by an earthquake or a tornado or some other thing that was completely out of our realm of, of power? Suffering is unavoidable. But what the scripture continues to tell us, the resounding, relentless message of Jesus is, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Your suffering is not the last word in the story.
So some things that we can do, I think one is we have to name it. We have to name the suffering. We have to name the violence. We have to name the fear. We have to look directly at it and to say, okay, this is the thing that's tormenting me. This is the thing that I am most afraid of. We have to go all the way into it. That's, I think that's the beautiful thing about this passage, about Revelation 6 and all these different images, is that this writer is saying, what, what would it look like if you look directly into the thing that you are most afraid of and that, you are, that is most tormenting you? Um, there's, a, there's a movie that came out several years ago uh, starring Sean Penn called Milk. Um, it's, about, uh, it's a true story about Harvey Milk, the very famous gay activist in San Francisco in the late 1970s. And there's a scene where... Uh, Harvey Milk receives a death threat in the mail. It's like a handwritten letter. And um, instead of throwing it away or like giving it to the police or anything like that, he, uh, he, takes, he takes the death threat and he pins it to his refrigerator. And his partner says to him, he says, why would you put that there? Like, put that away. Yeah, like, throw it away, put it away somewhere. And he says, no, you have to look at it. Because if you, if you can look directly at it, it loses its power. Because if you hide it, if you tuck it away, then it gains all sorts of strength that it doesn't even deserve to have. But if you can look directly at it, if you can name the thing, then all of a sudden you have allowed it to have as much power as it can possibly have. So one of the things I think this passage continues to remind us of is, yeah, you have to look directly into the thing that you were most afraid of and the thing that is tormenting you, the thing that causes you despair, and you have to name it. What are the things that need to be named? And then the second is refuse to give up hope. Refuse um, to allow this to be the final word in your story. Uh, one, one writer that I love likes to say that despair is what happens when we believe that tomorrow is going to be exactly like today. Despair is what happens when we no longer have a sense of maybe something, maybe things can get better. It's the idea that the best days have already passed us, our best experiences have already gone, my best friendships have already dissolved. Despair is the belief that tomorrow will never be as good as today. But hope is, take heart, I have overcome the world. How many of us, we have to name something and we have to choose to hope in spite of what it's done to us. So in whatever ways you've suffered, in whatever ways that you carry some sort of fear, in whatever ways these images sort of wake something up inside you, may you look directly at it. May you acknowledge the, the way it, it affects you and the way that it makes you feel and then choose to hope anyway. Choose to believe that tomorrow can be better than today. Choose to believe in a Jesus who says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Yeah, you'll have trouble. That's part of it. But that's not the last part of it. The final word of your story has not yet been spoken. So may we, may we choose to hope, and may we choose to look for a tomorrow that could possibly be better than today. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the gift of hope. We thank you for inviting us to name all of the ways that we suffer, all the ways that we feel despair. And for those of us who are in the middle of that, for those of us who, like, every, every time the phone rings, every time we get a new text message, it's just more bad news. It's more pain. It's more despair. It's more fear. Help us to, to realize that that's not the final word of the story. For those of us who need a fresh word of hope, like many of the people who first read this letter thousands of years ago, may we find the good news in this story. May we hear your words as you say, take heart, I have overcome the world. And may we realize that the final word of our story has not yet been spoken. It's the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. There are offering boxes in the back if you want to give. Grace and peace be with you.